Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Below you may leave to go to Children's Church. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. This may be a good time if you have nursery-age children as well. We have a pretty stocked nursery back there with a lot of workers. So this is an opportunity for the children to be in an environment where they can learn. Revelation chapter 5. The date was February 22nd. 1980, some of us were just little kids then, 1980, it was called the Miracle on Ice. The famous Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, where the United States Olympic team of amateur collegiate players beat the long-favored Soviet Union. They went on to beat Finland and win the gold medal. And if you remember watching footage of that scene, Al Michaels was calling the game for ABC News, and he had that famous line, Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And then the place just erupted with this spontaneous expression of applause, of of praise, of, of it just went mayhem. Have you guys ever been at a sporting event or something where the crowd just went crazy? The crowd just went crazy, almost to the point of worship. Speaking of worship, the night was 1972, the Academy Awards celebration. And there was this famous actor who was a trailblazer in the movie industry who had never won an Academy Award before in his life. And so they were going to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award on this special night at the Academy Awards. And so they did a retrospective on the screen. And then when the lights came up, And that famous actor stood there on the stage. The crowd went wild. They stood and gave a standing ovation for more than three minutes long. It's the longest standing ovation in the history of the Academy Awards. And so they stood for a man, the man Charlie Chaplin. They stood for three minutes to applaud a man. So whether it's your favorite sports team winning the championship and the crowd goes wild, or it's your famous movie star or a famous athlete or a famous person, it's amazing how people can, can applaud these things and go crazy over these things. But you see, today is Resurrection Sunday. Today is the day that we as Christians celebrate Jesus. Of all days of the year, this should be the day that we stand We applaud. We go crazy for Jesus. You see, a lot of people in our world are very fascinated with Jesus. They're interested in Jesus, but they don't know who he is and what he's accomplished. And so I have one very specific question for us this morning. Just one question, a basic question on this Easter Sunday, and it is this. Why is Jesus Christ alone worthy of all of our worship? What sets Jesus apart from Muhammad of Islam 
or Buddhism, or Sikhism, or Hinduism, or New Ageism, or Oprahism, or any other ism that you want to put out there? What sets Jesus apart from that? Why is he alone worthy of praise? As I went back to my office between the services, I went online and I found out that Guru Sathya Sai Baba died. Now, that may mean nothing to you. You may not know who Sathya Sai Baba is, but when we were in India a few weeks ago, his picture was all over the place. This was a revered guru who was a swami in um, India who was worshipped by millions across the world. He had ashrams in over 126 countries. He was supposedly, at the age of 14, he declared himself an avatar. Now, you may not know what an avatar, but in the Hindu religion, that basically means he was reincarnated as a swami. And so millions of people today are mourning the death of a swami in India who's never going to rise again. We worship Jesus who rose again. And those of us that went to India a few week, last week, we saw the emptiness of false religion. We went into a Hindu temple. We saw a woman putting her hands on a statue of a bull, giving praise and worship to a bull and worshiping and praying and, and leading her little daughter up to that, to an empty God. We saw the animism that the tribes of the Bogota are entrenched in. Animism is basically the worship of ancestors. It's, it's the fear of evil spirits. We saw firsthand the emptiness of false worship of these people all across the world that are worshiping idols. But you don't have to go to India to see false idolatry. It's right here alive and well in America. We have idolatry all over the place. Whether it's materialism, the almighty dollar, whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career, a job, a person, a, a, a sport, a hobby, a pastime. John Calvin said that our, the human mind, the human heart is an idol factory. That we just want to churn out idols to worship. And so the human nature is to elevate things above our Creator. And so on this Easter Sunday, what I want us to do is I want us to take a sneak peek into the very throne room of heaven. I want us to see what goes on in heaven to see why Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all of our worship and that we should erupt in a standing ovation in praise longer than three minutes at Academy Awards, longer than your favorite hockey team winning the Olympics. Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all our worship and our praise and our adoration. So let's read together in Revelation chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, we're going to look at the first six verses and then we're going to go through the rest of the chapter to see how Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all praise and worship on this Easter Sunday. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb 
standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. What I want us to see just briefly are three reasons, three things, three issues, why Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. And here's reason number one. Reason number one why Jesus is worthy this Easter to be worshipped is because he is the cornerstone of all history. He is the centerpiece of all of civilization. He is the capstone of the entire universe. You see, that John the Apostle was the one that wrote the book of Revelation, and he's, he's given a vision of heaven. And what he sees is he sees someone on the throne holding in his right, arm, right hand a scroll. This is God the Father, who is brilliant, who is holy, who is majestic. He's holding a scroll in his right hand. Now, the right hand represents power, authority, majesty. And you may ask, well, what is this scroll that God is holding? It's got writing on the inside. It's got writing on the outside, thus signifying that this is a, a total scroll. You can't add any more to it. What is this scroll? It's the scroll of destiny. It's the scroll that God has ordained what must happen in unfolding his plan for the universe. It it talks about his redemption, his justice. What has God planned for the universe? It's the scroll of destiny. And it's a powerful scroll because it's sealed with seven seals. Now, in those ancient cultures, they would take a piece of paper like a scroll and they they would roll it up. And they would put a dab of hot wax on here to to seal it. And then they would put the signet ring on there. And and this would be an official document. You, you, you You couldn't break the seal unless you had permission. But this is sealed with seven seals. Seven signifying the number of completeness, the number of perfection. You see, this is an impenetrable scroll. Nobody can just come into the hand of God, grab it out of God's hand, and open the scroll of destiny. It's impenetrable. When I was growing up um, in Colorado Springs as a youngster, um, in ninth grade, I had the privilege of going on a field trip to NORAD. NORAD is also known as Cheyenne Mountain. It was the, uh, the strategic air command where they would monitor satellites, they would monitor missiles, anything that would come in and attack America, they, they would monitor that. And, and I remember going through all the, the armed guards, and they had an eight-foot-thick steel door that sealed the place. And back in the mid-'80s, this was the most um, unpenetrable fortress in all of America, Cheyenne Mountain, NORAD. That's what God is doing in protecting the contents of this scroll. And then the question rings out, who is worthy to come and take the scroll out of Almighty God's hand and unfold this plan for the universe? And nobody steps forward. Not one created person comes forward and says, I'll take it out of God's hand. I will do it. Nobody is able to come take the scroll out of God's hand. And so John begins to weep. And the original language says he begins to weep violently. He begins to weep uncontrollably because there's nobody in all of creation worthy enough to come open the scroll and unfold God's plan for the universe. And you may ask, well, why are there all the dramatic tension? Why doesn't God just open the scroll himself? I mean, he's God after all. Does he have to wait for someone to come open his scroll? If he wants to open it, why doesn't he open it? Revelation is a drama. It's a story. And God has given permission to only one person to come and take that scroll out of his hand. He's given it to Jesus. 
Jesus Christ has earned the right to come take the scroll out of God's hand because he has died on the cross and rose again. And one of the elders looks at John and says, Stop crying because there's one who has conquered. Now we get our word Nike. Now if you're wearing Nike tennis shoes, Nike is the Greek word for conquered. And in the original language, it means one has fully and finally conquered. One has overcome. There is one who stands as the cornerstone of all of creation. His name is Jesus Christ. He is alone, worthy to come execute God's plan for the universe. So reason number one that Jesus is worthy of all praise is because he is the cornerstone of all of history. He is the center of all of history. But secondly, the second reason Jesus is worthy to be worshipped is because he's the conquering lion. Not only is he the corner piece of the universe, he's the conquering lion. Notice what John finds out in verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Now, this was a prophecy back in Genesis 49 that from the tribe of Judah would come a lion, would come a king, would come a ruler in the line of David, king of kings and lord of lords. And when you think about a lion, we, even in our culture, a lion is what? The king of the beasts. A lion is not a nice little house cat that purrs when you pet it. What does a lion do? Tears apart its prey, brandishes its teeth. Now, how many of you have ever been to the Denver Zoo? You go to the Denver Zoo, and, the, and right at the very entrance of the zoo, there's the lion exhibit, right? It's right there. They, ha, they have the plexiglass. You can go up close, and you can see these lazy lions, right? It seems like every time I go to the zoo, the lions are just laying there. They're not doing anything. But do you know that when a lion roars, you can hear it from five miles away? None of us would want... We like that plexiglass, right? You can go up and make faces at the lion at the plexiglass and do all this crazy stuff, and the lion just looks at you. But what if that plexiglass wasn't there? Would any of us here want to meet a roaring lion in a dark alley? None of us would want to do that. So Jesus here is the powerful, sovereign, majestic king of kings. Get this notion out of your head of Jesus being a wimpy guy with feathered back hair, talking in a British accent, walking around in a toga, being all nice to people. Jesus is the conquering lion. He's a man's man. He is the king of all the universe. But here's a paradox. This happens a lot in the book of Revelation. John hears that he's going to see this lion that's conquered. And he turns around and what does he see? He expects to see a lion, but what does he see? Verse 6. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a, a lamb. So here's reason number three that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped this Easter is because he's the crucified lamb. John expects to see this powerful lion, but he turns around and he sees a lamb in the very throne room of God, the lamb. And what is the lamb doing? The lamb is standing. Now, this is the very throne room of God. If you look at the revelation up to this point, everyone's bowing down before God. Everyone's prostrate before God. Everyone's falling on their face before God. But the lamb is not falling on his face because the lamb is equal to God. He is standing in the throne room. Now, why is the lamb standing? He's standing because he is resurrected. The the imagery of the lamb standing means that he's victorious. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered sin and death. It's proof that the tomb is empty. That's why we celebrate Easter. 
Because the tomb is empty. Jesus has conquered hell. He's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered the grave. He is alive. He's in heaven. He's standing there as the sovereign king. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, he said, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He rose on the third day. As a matter of fact, if there is no resurrection from the dead, Paul says we are stupid. Literally. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, which means your faith is empty, your faith is stupid, your faith faith means nothing, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the grave, none of us would be able to stand here with our sins forgiven and have assurance of heaven if Christ had not jumped out of that grave and ascended on high as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But notice what the Lamb looks like. It's been through a violent struggle. The lamb is standing as though it had been slain. In the original text there, the lamb has been slaughtered. The lamb has been crucified. There's blood-stained marks on the lamb. And the way the original language reads, that this, this blood-stained slaughtering was, was a perfected crucifixion. It was a complete crucifixion. What were one of the last words that Jesus cried out on the cross? It is finished. He accomplished it. Jesus Christ, the crucified lamb. Now, John never does say this. John never tells his readers, hey, look, Jesus is the lamb. He doesn't need to do that. The word lamb shows up 27 times in the book of Revelation. But if you go back to the gospel of John, that John also wrote, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming on the scene, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? John 1, 29. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God, who what? takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Peter talks about it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed, that means bought or purchased, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. One of my favorite passages from the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 gives you a very vivid picture of the crucifixion of Jesus from an Old Testament perspective. So as I read Isaiah 53, 5-7, let these images sink into your mind of what Christ actually accomplished on that cross for us. Isaiah 53, 5-7. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has, and I'm going to give a translation here. That translation has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him. In the Hebrew that means God has caused to violently assault Jesus with all of our iniquity. All of our sin came barreling down upon Jesus. He laid him on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus is never a victim. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he was never a victim. He was sovereign up to the very point of his death. He was sovereign through his death. He was sovereign. He went quietly, yes, 
He did not open his mouth, yes, but the entire time he was in charge. He didn't protest. He didn't, he didn't say, God, stop this from happening. He, he didn't call down a legion of angels and said, I don't want to go through crucifixion. It's going to be too painful. No, he went to the cross for us. So we all need the Lamb of God to take away our sin. If you go back into chapter 4 of Revelation, you see God in all of his brilliance. God is on his throne. There's light emanating from the throne. There's peals of thunder. There's flashes of lightning. There's a glassy sea. There's, there's winged creatures protecting the throne. There's all of this brilliant holiness and God on his throne. And the question we've got to ask is who is going to dare walk into the very presence of God and present ourselves as if something within us makes us worthy to come to the throne of God. We cannot approach God. We would be incinerated on the spot if we were to approach that holy God. All of us are stained with sin. All of us are guilty because of our sin. All of us rebel because of our sin. Not one of us can walk into the very presence of God and say, here I am. We all need the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to grant us access to that throne. The only way you get to God is through Jesus. Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection gets you access into heaven. And so here's the question for you this morning. Do you have this Jesus? Do you have this Christ in your life who alone can grant you access to God the Father, grant you access to heaven? Do you have Jesus? Many people ask the question, Maybe you've been asked this question, are you saved? And they think if they get the southern accent and get the voice higher, it's more powerful. Are you saved? Saved. Saved, saved, saved. Are you saved? And it's a good question, but you've got to ask a little deeper. Saved from what? You see, we throw that word around. Are you saved? Salvation? Saved, saved, saved. What are you saved from? Well, at first glance, you may say, well, I'm saved from my sins, and you would be correct. I'm saved from hell, you'd be correct. I'm saved from the devil, you'd be correct. But what if I said this? You're saved from God himself. You see, God is a holy God. And there's going to be a day of judgment. And not one of us is going to be able to stand before this holy God and plead anything in and of ourselves as worthy to be in his presence. We're not going to pull out our good deeds and say, God, look what I've done. Look at my church attendance. Look at my good deeds. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments. I've tried to be a good person. We're going to pull all this stuff out and God's going to say, filthy rags. It's not going to get you into my presence. None of us can. None of us is worthy enough to walk into the very presence of God and give him anything. We need Christ. Christ alone. He is worthy to be worshipped because he's the cornerstone of all the universe. He's the conquering lion and he's the crucified lamb. He's worthy of all of our worship. But as we travel through the rest of this chapter, we see worship going on in heaven. I think it's very important that we on earth understand how worship happens in heaven because we want to model what's going on in heaven. I think what goes on in heaven should probably be the model for how we worship here on earth. And so we're going to see worship taking place here in heaven, worship that we will be a part of one day. And I pray that as we see the worship going on right here, it fuels us this morning to have an exuberant joy in our risen Savior. So let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 7. Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. And he went, that's Jesus, the Lamb. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. 
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, there were three reasons why we worship Jesus. I want you to see three concentric circles of worship here in the book of Revelation. You've got an inner circle of worship. The worship is going to start closest to the throne. And then it comes to a second concentric circle of a different group of worshipers. And then finally it comes to a third circle. And then we see this massive explosion of worship. So let's start at the first concentric circle, the closest to the throne. Who's there? We see in verses 8 through 10, the inner circle, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Jesus goes, takes the scroll out of God's hand. And before he even has a chance to open it, what do they do? They fall down and they worship. They worship the living Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. Now, how do they worship him? With harps. Plank. Plank. Is that what you think of when you think of harps? You know, babies with togas on clouds, little halos. That's not what heaven's going to be like. If that's what heaven is like, walking around in a diaper playing a little harp, I'm not there. That's Tom and Jerry theology. A harp is more like a guitar. Okay, you've got a guitar. It's a 12-string instrument that they used back in the Old Testament. And when you play the guitar, does the guitar sound joyous? The guitar is a joyous instrument. And so when you go back and look at the Old Testament, you see that the harp was this joyous instrument that was used for worship. Psalm 33, 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. And so this worship is joyous, it's festive, it's loud. And, and what's, what's more fun than seeing like guys up on a stage just jamming out on the guitar? I think that's fun you got five guys up there. They're jamming out on the guitar. Now, I don't know if these angels are jamming out in heaven on guitars. That would be awesome if they were. All we know is that whatever those harps are, it's not plink, plink, wearing togas on a cloud. It is massively fun, joyous, loud, exciting worship. And why is it that way? Because Christ has risen from the grave. And then they sing a new song. Verses 9 through 10, they sing the new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain. There's that word again. You were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransom people for God. Ransom means to buy out of slavery, to purchase someone out of bondage, reminiscent of the Exodus in the Old Testament when God purchased the Israelites out of slavery and brought them through the Red Sea. Just in the same way, God has purchased us out of our slavery to sin and he's rescued us. He's purchased us. He's purchased for himself a people. Now in the Old Testament, it was just the Jews. It was just the Israelites that were saved. But notice who's saved here. This is the new covenant. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's all types of people. Do you realize heaven's going to be multicolored, multi-ethnic? 
And here's what my little thought is. I don't know if this is theologically accurate, but this is my thought. I think in heaven there's going to be a special place for Emmanuel Bible Church and the Bogota of India. We're going to be right next to each other at the throne. That's just what I think. But you're going to be next to people of all different ethnicities, every tribe, tongue, language, people before the throne of God, worshiping him there as his people. So we've seen the first concentric circle. It's these 24 elders and the four living creatures. Those, I, don't know, I don't know how to explain these creatures to you. Go read a commentary of someone that's smarter than me. I just know that they're there and they're closest to the throne and they fall down and worship. They're the worship leaders. But then notice the next concentric circle. Verses 11 and 12, we have the next concentric circle. Then I looked and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, John sees thousands upon millions of angels. This is the next, the next wave. Okay, so the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they're falling down and worshiping. Now you've got millions of angels. Now, I don't know what that sounds like, but to have a millions of angels singing and worshiping is probably going to blow us away. And what are they singing? What's the content of their message? Look at it, look at it. Look at it right there in the text. Verse 12. They are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's all about Jesus and the cross and the crucifixion. They are worshiping the risen and crucified Lord. Now, the inner circle. 24 elders, four living creatures fall down worship, playing those guitars. Thousands upon millions of angels praising Jesus. Now we come to the fullness of the worship in heaven, the final concentric circle, the outer circle. And where do we see that? We see it reach its peak in verse 13. Notice what it says. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Who's there now? Everybody. I mean, this is the crescendo of heaven. Not just angels and flying creatures, but every creature under heaven is there around the throne giving praise to King Jesus. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be there singing praise. I can't even conceive of what this would sound like. We can't even put it into words of what this experience would be. But this experience of having all of creation worshiping Jesus at the center of the throne room defies our imagination. We can't even begin to think about it. But I want you to notice something. How does it end? Verse 14, the four living creatures say, Amen. That means so be it. Let it be so. And the elders did what? Fell down and worshiped. I don't know about you, but don't you want to be a part of that glorious display in heaven? Don't you want to be there? But the question I've got to ask is, is our response the same as what's the response is in heaven? What's the response? Only the, the only response worthy of King Jesus is to what? Fall down. You fall down. Falling down is a sign of humility. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of thankfulness. It's a sign of helplessness. We fall down before king jesus because he's worthy do you fall down before him as the centerpiece of all of creation do you fall down before him as the the conquering lion do you fall down before him as the crucified lamb do you fall face down because you see when you go to heaven you're not going to stand there and say look what i accomplished god 
You're not going to pull out of your bag of tricks all these things that you've done. You're going to stand there and you're going to bow before King Jesus. And the only reason you're going to be in heaven is because God in his grace has chosen to save you by his blood. And you will fall down before King Jesus and say, I thank you. I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be here. There's no reason why I should be here. The only reason I'm here before your throne is because King Jesus, you've loved me enough to die on the cross. You rose again and I have trusted in you because if I came into heaven with my own stuff, I am bankrupt. I am helpless. I am hopeless. And so let me just challenge you this morning. What better day than Easter 2011 than to fall down before this King? to surrender to Jesus, to give your life to Jesus, to repent of your sins, to hate your sins, to forsake your sins, and to turn and to trust fully in what Christ Jesus has done for you on the cross. He's paid the penalty. He's died in our place. Do you want to be there on that final scene around the throne, on your knees, worshiping Jesus for his glory? Because there's only one other place you will be. You will either be there at the throne on your knees worshiping Jesus or the only other place you will be is in hell, fire, the wrath of God, forever burning with your fist shaking at God because you've refused to trust in the provision that Jesus Christ gave. And so today you've heard the message. You've heard the hope of the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. So may we all fall down before King Jesus on our faces and praise him alone for salvation. Let today be a day of worship and celebration. What I want us to do is just watch the screen for just a brief moment.